0: At my core, I'm the laziest guy ever. Like, let's see. 15 minutes of exercise once a week or an hour a day. I'll take the 15 minutes as long as I get the benefits or maybe most of the benefits because I want to save time. So being lazy oh, drove man. me to automate my job <laughs> so I didn't have to do my job and I still get paid for it. Like, it's a very natural thing for people to do if you have the tools. Baby, what's the
1: big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die Just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Try to meet an expectation. What
2: gonna say. Hey, Podcasts and Pod kittens, pod puppies, and pod whatever the hell else we have listening. Uh, this is a good episode. This is um, Dave Asprey, biohacker, uh, internet pioneer, possibly the first person to ever sell anything on the internet. Uh, super interesting guy uh, child of mathematical geniuses and um aliens who uh, were in roswell new mexico you 'll hear him explain that his fascinating family background um, super as i say super interesting dude he he was uh not particularly healthy as uh, an adolescent growing up and um because of an interesting convergence of his interests, his expertise, some people he met along the way, some economic uh, things that fell into place in a way that gave him time and opportunity to um, to investigate things. He took his own health in his own hands and started figuring stuff out. And now he's uh, helping other people figure things out. So... Uh, I'm excited about this episode. It was a lot of fun to hang out with him in his place uh, on Vancouver Island uh, recently and and uh, chat with him there. You can see my interview with him or his interview with me. I'm not sure how that works. The interview that... Uh, that he conducted with me on video uh, on his site, um, bulletproofexecutive.com, I think it is. But uh, if I fuck that up, just uh, Google Dave Asprey, A-S-P-R-E-Y, and uh, you'll, you'll find him. He's all over the place on the net. He came up with the uh, Bulletproof coffee thing, which is sweeping the world so he's easy to find um anyway you can see me chatting with him and then the next day i went back and recorded this podcast that you're about to hear um all right so let me shout out uh, give a shout out to some various various people michael stubbert william malloy don barrett lucas zilmer and nolan um Either just sent me great emails or uh, sent in a contribution, a donation uh, to support the podcast uh, also tipsypilgrim.com. check it out it's a it 's a very um, amusing website, sort of a travel blog about food and sex, and just cruising around the world uh, interesting, good writing, good photography very very well put together. Um, okay, what else uh, do I have to make sure? I, I, I always forget shit. I feel sort of apologetic, you know, wasting your time with, you know, sponsors and all this kind of stuff. But the truth is, you know, the, it's important. And, uh, you know i i, I shouldn't uh, feel apologetic about it i guess you can always jump ahead if you don't want to listen to it but i do want to say thanks to feralaudio.com they you might be listening to the podcast through their site um if not check them out feral f-e-r-a-l audio.com they've got a whole bunch of great podcasts there and it 's cool it 's not a it 's not a company it 's a collective of people who uh, are interested in podcasting and they uh, they they 've got studio space they do production they sort of set the whole thing up for people who are just getting into it they They did everything for me to get off the ground um at this point i 've sort of taken it over because i 'm not in l a anymore so i I have to do it myself but um but they're great it's it's cool they share the money and 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 uh i just got a great t-shirt from them anyway feralaudio.com of course uh some of you are listening to this through itunes uh if you are and you're you're a fan you like the podcast you can always leave a comment there uh, ratings i think there are like 200 people who've taken the time to leave a rating uh some ratings there and i really appreciate it you know they always say the comment sections are like, you know, I never read the comments because they're so full of trolls and nastiness. But so far, at least, and I hope I don't, you know, knock on wood here, uh, <laughs> so far the comments have been uh, incredibly kind and generous. I, I really appreciate that. Um, if you want to get uh, t shirts, we've got uh, Sexaton, those funky Sexaton t shirts. You can always order them through my site, chrisryanphd.com uh there 's a uh, an order form right on there, and my mom will send them out to you uh and uh Of course, we thank shore design t shirts uh, they provide the shirts. They are super cool. You should check out their site. They they're constantly upgrading the site with new designs, and they've got a blog now that's uh, very cool. They're based in Chiang Mai, Thailand, northern Thailand. If you go to Thailand, go to Chiang Mai. A lot of people miss it because they just go to the islands. They land in Bangkok and they go south to Koh Samui or Koh Phangan or whatever. Um, but Northern Thailand is a special place. I spent about a month up there a long time ago. I rented a motorcycle and rode all around the, what's called the golden triangle where Burma, Laos and uh, Thailand meet. Had some very interesting experiences, nearly killed myself several times. Um, I hadn't ridden a motorcycle in years and I was, you know, young and stupid as opposed to old and stupid, which is what I'm becoming. Uh, but uh, one time I, I was on that trip, I was cruising along. It was late afternoon. The sun was setting, and I came around a turn, going a little faster than I should have been probably, but I was, you know, feeling, <laughs> feeling what you feel when you're 28 on a motorcycle in northern Thailand. And I came around a corner, and... Standing in front of me, blocking the entire two lane road, was an elephant. Uh, I was at a 90 degree angle, it was crossing the road. I slammed on the brakes. Of course, on a motorcycle, when you slam on the brakes, you have to be careful not to slam them on too hard because you lose all control and you put the bike down. So I was, you know, stopping as fast as I could stop without locking the wheels. And I st- came to a stop about three feet away from the elephant uh, you know and of course in retrospect that would have been a pretty cool way to die I mean it probably would have hurt the elephant which wouldn't have been cool but as far as you know funky ways to die running into an elephant on your motorcycle is uh, right up there um, someday I, sh- I should probably do a series of essays about near-death experiences i've had because uh you know that one that's a real one then there was the one you may have heard uh, me telling the story about being bit by the scorpion uh on the temple in guatemala i wasn't actually close to death then but i thought i was uh in fact i thought i was dying um if you haven't heard me tell that story uh you can find it on my website. I, I told the story for the Risk podcast, and they added all sorts of funky sound effects and edited, uh, edited it. it. How, how many syllables in that? Edited it. Uh, edited the story really nicely. And uh, so you can check out that story, risk. dot uh, com. I don't remember the name of it. Maybe if you Google Chris Ryan and risk, you'll find it. If not, it's right on my website. I think it's on the on the homepage of chrisryanphd.com. But yeah, man, I, I so many times I got shot at in Alaska on the Fourth of July, which was interesting. And the reason I remember it was the 4th of of July is we heard the gunshots, but we thought it was firecrackers. So this guy's shooting at us with a pistol, and I was walking in a group with some other guys, and I saw the dust kicking up on the—I was in front of the group, and I saw the dust kicking up on the trail in front of us. And I heard the pops, but it took me a while to put the two together. And then I was like, "Holy shit! Wait a minute!" I look over and there's a guy, you know, shooting at us with a pistol. Anyway, uh, yeah, lots of near-death experiences. So I, I had tickets on a bus that went over uh, in an avalanche, but I would slept in that morning. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Anyway, uh, shoredesigntshirts.com. Check them out. And if you decide to buy some stuff from them, which you should, because the uh, man the I mean, the designs are cool, right? But they're just t shirts, so whatever, they're t shirts. But the, the, the quality of the shirts is really nice. It's like, it's very thin material, but it's 100% cotton, so it's absorbent and cool and really comfortable, a little stretchy. I'm not sure how they do it. Um, and not um, fragile. So they're, they're thin, but they're strong and super comfortable. I, I love them. Cassie's got a bunch of stuff, uh, dresses and stuff from them. She wears, like, virtually every day. Um, she wears some of them for sleeping and stuff. They're really nice. And, of course, the design on our shirts uh, was done by um, Levi Greenacres. Check his site, levigreenacres.com. He's a graphic artist, tattoo artist, chef cool guy and uh, yeah, the, the story of the t-shirts, I've probably told it lots of times but it's uh, a, based on a picture he took of a friend of his who was reading our book naked, uh, or at least pretending to, so it's part of the um, Sex at Dawn Naked Reader compilation, which you can find Uh, on our book site sexatdawn.com just look for not safe for work photos and you'll see dozens of them that readers have sent in and if you're thinking about it like do it you know send one in it's great I've (laughs) Cassie and I have agreed that when we get a hundred of them we'll do one ourselves so I think we're pushing 70 or so at this point Uh, okay if you want to support the podcast uh, you can always hit the donate page on the the, the tangentially speaking page on my site, chrisryanphd.com. I think you have to like click on the bonobo's balls or something to do that. Um, There's also an Amazon affiliate link. So if you're planning to buy some stuff from Amazon and you go through our site, we'll get, I think it's 3% of whatever you spend. And it doesn't increase the cost for you at all. It just takes a a cut off Amazon's profit margin, which, you know, they can afford. So uh, that would be great. Um, And I'm thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about ways to monetize the site, but I don't want to... I don't know. I don't want to start squeezing people, you know, because I'm really happy that, that you're taking the time to listen to this at all. And, uh, you know, it's a privilege to be to be connecting with so many people. And and in return, you give me the excuse to connect with the people I interview, which is wonderful. Um, so I don't want to mess with that, but I would love to find a way to make a little money at this so that I could devote more time to it. Um, Because I really enjoy it. Uh, I think I said last episode I talked about this a little bit. So what I've been thinking of doing is making uh, bonus material, just recording some bonus material. Some of these stories, because I get a lot of emails from people saying, you know, wow, it's great, all this traveling you did and these things, these these stories you tell, and honestly, I'm not really sure because I feel a little... uh, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, you don't want to talk about yourself and tell your stories and become a bore at the party. You know, you don't want to be that guy. Um, But you guys don't know me. So you haven't heard these stories before, I guess. So some of you are like, yeah, tell the story, man. You know, we want to hear what happened with this thing when you were in prison in Alaska or, you know, whatever. You know, the bus and the avalanche and all this stuff. So I was thinking what I might do is just record some stories uh more personal stuff um you know some sexual adventures and non-sexual adventures and you know bizarre criminal enterprises that i have been um privy to if not involved in personally for the NSA and others who are listening to this. Uh, so I was thinking, record some of those and and put them up as like a digital download for 99 cents each or something um, and see if there's enough interest that that might uh, be a way to to make a little money at this. And um, so sort of have like the, the interview podcast will remain completely free as they are. But uh, if you want to hear me uh, yammer on about uh, the old days, then... <laughs> I don't know if I'm old enough to say that yet, but, uh, you know, for 99 cents, you can you can join the party and, and listen to that kind of stuff. So one of the interesting things that, uh, that Dave Asprey talks about in this, and actually, I think you just heard it. I'm, I'm going to put it at the front of the thing. He talks about being lazy and how being lazy... Um, was helpful for him because he doesn't want to waste any effort. And that that's something I've thought about a lot. I, I've been accused of being lazy my whole life. I can remember having arguments with my dad where he wanted me to cut the lawn and, you know, he would pay me ten bucks or something to, to go cut the lawn. And and he was you know, he wasn't he was certainly no slave driver. He was just trying to get me to associate work and satisfaction. And I can remember I hated it I hated any sort of Repetitive work That seemed Unnecessary In any way And I can remember him saying to me Don't you take any pleasure Don't you take any pride In you know, doing a good job Of cutting the line And it, of course I didn't Because I did a shitty job um, And I remember saying But dad, it'll just grow back You know And he looked at me with just incomprehension, you know, it wasn't anger. It was just like, what the fuck are you talking about? And that's pretty much been my approach to life in general. It's like, I hate wasting effort. I really do. I don't dislike working, but... If, if I'm working on something that's worth doing, but I really hate wasted effort and I have never understood work for the sake of work or people talking about the nobility of work or the pleasure of work. That has always just seemed like a bunch of bullshit to me. So it's interesting, Dave, that's one of the... Notes uh, that Dave came up with that, that resonated with me. You know, I think there are two kinds of laziness in life. And the one kind, the, the sort of obvious kind, makes your life worse because you don't get shit done. You just, you know, you sort of descend into sloth and, um, you know, mess. But there's another kind of laziness, which I think is actually an expression of some sort of wisdom. Um, And that's the sort of laziness that can give rise to innovation. That's the sort of laziness that can lead you to wait for the right moment to do something. That's the sort of laziness that leaves you thinking when others are running around in a panic. And you wait, you think, you plan, you Sort of understand the situation in, in a deeper way, and then you can do just the right thing. There's a there's a Zen quality, I guess, to to laziness, to that kind of laziness that can be very productive and enriching. Um, so I think. I don't know. That's something I think about a lot. And uh, maybe it's like so many things in my life. Maybe it's just an elaborate justification for my psychological deficiencies. We'll never know. That's for you to decide. Anyway, I hope you really enjoy this podcast. Uh, And I think I'm going to play you into the podcast with studio outtakes of the Beach Boys. Uh, which I think illuminate a little bit of what I was just trying to say about laziness and simplicity, sometimes being richer than, uh, than a lot of noise. There's, there's a beauty in simplicity and spareness. So here's a zen rendition of The Beach Boys. Thanks.
1: One, two, three, four... Next,
2: next so i'm here with uh bulletproof executive dave asprey is that your were you a bulletproof executive before or is that
0: uh, something that came up later that's pretty much the name of the blog I, i've always been a bit of a biohacker especially in the last maybe last 15 or so years i've really gotten into upgrading myself before that it was, it was kind of like a normal young guy You know, you always want to and perform well and all, but I, I honestly wasn't that serious about it. Right. And when I realized, well, I'm probably going to die, I got some lab results back that showed my brain wasn't working very well. Uh, I had high risk of stroke and heart attack. I weighed 300 pounds. My six days a week of exercise didn't work. Now
2: when, when was this? Uh,
0: was when I was about years 24, ago? something like that. Yeah, so I guess now 16, 17 years ago. Wow. So, and you were working in Silicon Valley at this point? Yeah, in fact, I... What? Even before I went to Silicon Valley, I was the first guy to sell anything over the internet. In my early 20s, <laughs> I sold caffeine t-shirts. They said caffeine, my drug of choice. Uh-huh. I sold them to 12 countries out of my dorm room at UC Santa Barbara. I was in, you know, like a whole bunch of magazines. It's like, look, this new kind of business called e-commerce. No, no one's Heard of it? Really? Yeah, that's hilarious. the same day I did that. Virtual Vineyards, uh, who became Wine.com. Uh-huh. We both sold like the same things within like a day or two of each other. So maybe they were first, maybe I was first. But honestly, who's counting at this point? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you were there at the beginning.
0: Yeah. And then I went to a company called Exodus Communications later, which invented modern cloud computing. And it was my product there. I'm not Al Gore. I didn't invent cloud computing. But, you know, I was a pioneer in the space and helped to create the very first instance of shipping infrastructure as a service. We call it now in the cloud computing business, like Amazon Web Services. Right. right, Very proto 15 years ago, Amazon Web Services kind of service.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to look back at that time and see how many things were sprouting in the 90s that have now come to define our reality in many ways. You mean internet porn then? That's my reality, yeah, yeah. But let's talk about your reality. <laughs> um, yeah, I would have guessed that Internet porn was the first thing I ever sold on the Internet, you know. It,
0: yeah, for a all I know. of my pussy, $5. It would not surprise me. Yeah. If some, but then again, payment mechanisms were not the same. Uh, so, that's so true. So figuring out how to take money from someone was yeah. a problem. My first time, it was checks. And then there was this company called First Virtual, which is the first online payment processing. People would fax me a copy of their check. <laughs> <laughs> it was They were faxing to make payment for e commerce like it was nuts right, right. Um, but I mean that was so long ago that when I look at what 's happened now and and your vision absolutely came true i mean we 're filming this at my house in outside Victoria, uh, sitting on the edge of you know a deck overlooking a pond in the forest, yeah. And yet the Bulletproof executive is seen by a ton of people. A lot of people are seeing your podcast. I don't know what your traffic levels are like, but you're a popular guy.
2: It's it's going up a couple thousand a week. It's beautiful. It's sort of blowing my mind. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're not, nowhere near Rogan numbers or your numbers. But... I'm, I'm nowhere near Rogan <laughs> numbers either. Very few people are, right? Yeah. I, I think Bulletproof, uh, the podcast, get about 15,000 uh, on a new podcast uh-huh. and a couple thousand the yeah. week thereafter. Right. Yeah. That's but, about where we are. Yeah. But yeah. it's like. You know, I'm grateful people are willing to spend that much time to hear exactly. what we're talking about. Right? It's exactly. it's really cool, and, and I hope you know I hope it adds value. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I
2: actually said this in the introduction to the podcast I just posted yesterday. I was talking about how, um, how uh, what a privilege it is to do this. You yeah. know, I mean, aside, not. I'm not making any money from it at this point. Uh, you know, maybe if the numbers keep going up at some point, there will be some income from it. But uh, mainly, it's just it gives you an excuse to sit down and talk to really interesting people. Doesn't it? You <laughs> yeah. know, like a guy like you will cut out an hour or so of your day to do this. Whereas if I just you know, sent you an email saying, hey, you never heard of me, but I'm driving through. Can I stop and, you know, hang out?
0: You'd mm-hmm. be like, well, who the hell is this? I, and I, why? I do that with people when, when I can't. Can it's just you know yeah, the, but guys are for it yeah. And, and if we talk about some cool stuff, maybe it'll help some other people exactly. And, or this way, them, you
2: get to hang out with twenty or thirty thousand people in yeah. the same amount of time. It's so it's so cool. Yeah, um we should set the scene. You set the scene a little bit here. We're sitting at um, at Dave's man cave can we call it a man cave man uh, I, cabin for
0: biohacking facility Bio- but, you know <laughs> hey uh, man cave yeah that's about that at, at an undisclosed location
2: uh it, while i was setting up the the equipment dave immediately started hacking my wife who's now hooked up to uh, how many
0: electrodes uh one two three four five electrodes
2: her brain being scanned and fed into a computer program which then you'll use to what uh, to create we're actually a, uploading her to the internet so i'll have a like an avatar of <laughs> <laughs> it's like every man's fantasy right you get three wives but they're all the same woman oh great
0: <laughs> what, what we're actually doing is we're putting her uh, putting her brain waves into the computer uh, just getting electricity off of her scalp and then the computer analyzes the brain waves and then plays a sound back that's based on the brainwaves. so it's a biofeedback it's system. neurofeedback neurofeedback so we're looking specifically at electricity and I have other forms of biofeedback in, in here in the lab right. where we could also look at blood flow in the brain. And we could say, teach you to move blood flow to the front of your brain. Right. Where if you can do that, you can pay attention better. So we take people who have perfectly healthy brains and it's like lifting weights for your brain. Exactly. And just like five minutes of some of these things has a noticeable impact in your ability to focus that sticks with you. So your brain's yeah. very plastic and it's desperate to learn and to fix itself and to upgrade itself if only it has the information. And all we're doing with this stuff is telling your nervous system or telling your brain, hey, you're doing something now. And the brain's, oh, that's what that is. And then it starts auto-correcting. There's not really a lot of consciousness involved here.
2: It's a really profound thing when you think about it. You know, Carl, Sagan said that uh, human beings are the organs with which the universe perceives itself. You know, <laughs> that's I'm, a great I'm, quote. Well, I'm paraphrasing yeah. it, but uh, I'm sure he said it better, but you know, that's the idea. And what you're essentially talking about with this, uh, what would you call it, neurofeedback? Yeah. Is allowing is giving the brain uh, tools to become aware of itself.
0: Perfectly On put. a
2: deeper yeah. level, right? I, I started to tell you and then stopped when, when you were setting up the the electrodes on Casilda. When I was, uh, I must have been 12, 12 years old. I was living in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh. And uh, summer came around and I really wanted to be a psychologist. I I was determined to be a psychologist I was recording my dreams at night and reading all these books I was particularly interested in parapsychology and ESP and telepathy and all those sorts Mm -hmm. of things I was studying martial arts I was like very sort of um uh, a little bit, uh, out off, off the reservation. <laughs> I mean, if, if my parents had been different kind of people, I could have been like in serious psychotherapy or in a hospital or something. I was pretty right. strange kid. Um, but anyway, I decided I needed a job for the summer, right? So rather than, you know, work in a gas station or McDonald's or whatever, I started, I got out the phone book and called all the psychologists, just one after another, telling them, I'm, you know, my name's Chris. I'm wow. 12, 13, whatever I was. And I'm looking for a job, you know, or maybe I, I sent them a letter. I don't remember where there's a letter or phone call. Anyway, one guy, everybody ignored me, of course, but one guy wrote back and said, why don't you come down I, I don't have a job for you but come down and I'd like to give you a tour of the place and he was the chief psychiatrist at a mental hospital wow and so yeah the guy took me to, me and my mom took me took us all around the this big hospital down into the basement where they did the electroshock therapy you know showed us how they put the rubber thing in yeah. your mouth and that whole thing it's kind of scary when you're 12 yeah <laughs> yeah and this was 74 right which is about when one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah. came out I'm not sure exactly when that was but someone in there um so electroshock therapy was not uh did not have a good reputation at that point they were still using it to try to cure gay people and stuff um but then he took me up to his office and he said this is the stuff that really interests me and he had a biofeedback machine wow and he said you want to try it i said yeah so he hooked me up with this thing my mother went away because we were there for about an hour she went to the cafe or something and i remember it had electrodes like what you've got on casilda there um, and he also, there were things he put on my hands, the backs of my hands for temperature sensitivity, yeah, or, I, or ten, to, to measure the temperature.
0: Yeah, I have one of those over in the, the, the dresser over there. Yeah, it, it, temperature sensing is really cool. And back in the 70s, that was one of the easiest ones they could do. Right, right. And then he had... Yeah, there were tones
2: and there were colors. Yeah, like with some. So I, if I produced the alpha, it would do. And then he had this other thing. He hooked it up to a, um, like a train. Uh, the you know like the trains they put around the Christmas tree and wow, stuff.
0: that guy was seriously hardcore for 1974.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, so when I produced alpha, the train would move.
0: That's like a video game, but they didn't have pong back then. Right. So what else are they can hook it up to? Yeah, I love it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I don't know if he was bullshitting me or not, but after we did the session, he, he said, well, you've got these amazing, you know, powers, you know, very few people can... Because he was saying, like, okay, now raise the temperature on your right hand and lower it on your left hand. And on your was, first session, you were able to... Yeah, this is the only session I've ever had, yeah.
0: It, it turns out temperature sensitivity is the easiest one to learn, or not sensitive, temperature control, control is the easiest yeah. one to learn. But seriously, in one session, to be able to change one and not the other, yeah, it sounds like you had good physical control of your body. Yeah, well, and, and it was
2: really interesting... As I say, who knows how much of this is placebo effect or whatever, but ever after, when I felt cold, I would just say, well, I'm just going to raise my body temperature, right? No problem. I, I will change the condition. Through my mind because I know mm-hmm. I can do this, or at least that guy told me I could do it. <laughs> he gave you a great gift, right? <laughs> he did. Even if it was bullshit, sometimes bullshit's the greatest yeah, gift. I mean, the let's placebo face it. bullshit effect. Yeah. Right? Hey, I use the best placebos. <laughs> Don't give me those cheap ones. Yeah. Anyway, so uh there was that, and then there was something else. I now I skipped my mind, but there's some other the train biofeedback. Oh, when I was in Barcelona, I. i um, I used to consult at hospitals and one of the the you know I would like help doctors publish their research and you know uh, it was a very interesting gig because what I would do is I'd only work with doctors who uh, were working in an area that I found really interesting Right, and then what I would do is like uh, this guy was a chief surgeon of the hospital so i would like read up on trauma surgery Mm -hmm. and uh, all this kind of stuff and so i'd educate myself about it and then we'd go in and sort of do these continuing education classes where we talk about the most recent research that he didn't have time to read right and we do it in english so he's getting an english class you know english conversation class but it's also about stuff he needs to know so for them it was a a very high value kind of thing Um, but anyway i i told this guy the story about the biofeedback and this idea I had for sort of franchising neurofeedback service because now you got it all on a laptop so instead of him having to come into the office I'll come to the hospital and sit down and do sessions with surgeons directly before they go into surgery that's huge and he said I, I, I told him the story this idea I had and he was like when can we start (laughs) You know, we'll do it right now. We'll be your test case. I mean, you know, if you can demonstrate that there's a 5% increase in our mental focus, that's hugely important for a surgeon.
0: Wow. right. It, it's almost an easy hack to do. You might not even need neurofeedback. Some of the other things might might work better, like running a small current over the brain. Yeah. In fact, there's a study on that, right? A pretty recent one where they talk about running a tDCS style current through surgeons before microsurgery, and they're seeing an improvement. But you know, raising the brain's focus like that, it used to it used to take a lot of compute power. Even in say 1980, yeah. it, it was unimaginable to be able to do what we're doing now. I mean, what Cassie's hooked up to in there, it's a $5,500 thing that I sell and upgrade itself. And it's 300 sessions of neurofeedback. It's $18 a session, shareable with multiple people. So it it's one of those things where finally the compute power got to where it is. I've had my own EEG machine since 1998, mm. and they aren't that effective most of the time because you don't know what protocols to run. Right. And even if you do, the compute power wasn't there. So you need to be able to get feedback that happens within 350 milliseconds. There's a really tight window there. Mm -hmm. If you go beyond that, you start getting into the realm of conscious thinking, and you want feedback on what you're feeling, not what you're thinking. Right. So this is a huge time for hacking the the mind and hacking the body because we just didn't have this without being hooked up to, you know, a mainframe with spinning parts and all the (laughs) danger, Will Robinson level kinds of things. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I used to back up the disks on a computer in my first job in new york and uh be 85 or so and the discs were like dinner plates you know <laughs> exactly I, i'm sure they they held like 20 megabytes or something it. yeah yeah and the, it was a deck computer the size of a refrigerator right and yeah i, I want to get latest. a couple
0: of those old decks like for five dollars or something scrap value but they'd be kind of cool to like make a a table out of or something like there must yeah. be some sort of use for recycling old computers because they look kind of cool now
2: yeah yeah they yeah, they do they're retro
0: the, the old Cray's actually had benches on them they're built like a circle uh, I remember Godfather's Pizza uh, used to have like interior decorations that looked like Cray computers if really? you knew what a Cray computer looked like so it was kind of like <laughs> 70's architecture it, it's hilarious
2: yeah yeah alright so uh, listen if you want to partner up and uh, consult with uh, surgeons in Spain uh, I'll delete all this and, and we'll talk about it later <laughs>
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a deal. Edit this out. (laughs) Edit it out.
2: Um, uh, But let's let's get... I want to get the story, like how a guy becomes... A hacker of himself. I mean, how you, you mentioned you had some some health problems and and you were sort of at a, a crisis point in your life. Now it's, this, yeah. You know,
0: let's go back a little sure. earlier. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In New Mexico. And, okay. And I, I mean, I come from a weird family. My grandparents met on the Manhattan Project. Uh, my oh, grandmother has a, no. a lifetime achievement work for her work in the field of nuclear engineering.
2: No shit. And, and, okay. And gra- I figured we'd find
0: something back there. My, my right. grandfather's a PhD chemist. Uh, helped to figure out in fact i think he was the first guy to isolate americium as an element you and i'm sorry your grandmother was a physicist uh no she was a nuclear engineer My nuclear
2: father was a physical chemist and this is in a time when very few women were working in those fields very few so yeah. she's like one of very few women who and rose to prominence
0: until in her fields. 80s she was tutoring college students in calculus for fun like she's crazy math smart and wow! So yeah, I have good genes. My other uh, set of, of grandparents come from Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, you know, <laughs> aliens, so genetic mutation, and aliens came together and created <laughs> that's biohacking. Good mix, that, that's hey. like the whole story right there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Interplanetary mixed race. Yeah, that's. Wow, that's amazing. That's, that's very interesting. So, wait, your, others, your other grandparents are from Roswell. Yeah. But they settled there. They're you know, they.
0: I think, were they born? Yeah, they were Belgian, but they've been living there for, you know, of the vast percentage, majority of their lives, right? Right, right. Uh, so, like, you know, my mother grew up in Roswell, New Mexico, went to Goddard High School and all that. And really? It's just, just like the TV show, pretty much. And, and is your father in engineering? or? Uh, he worked at Sandia National Laboratories. Oh, so, so he's so, also physicist, mathematician? Something uh, IT. So IT. So he IT. did basically... Large scale group collaboration work.
2: Wow. Okay. All
0: right. Well, I'm glad I asked. They also yeah. owned a gold mine, though. So I, I grew up literally. <laughs> I had my first computer when I was eight. Before DOS was created, it was called CPM. Uh-huh. Uh, and now get this my mom was the first employee at the company that became Microsoft. She was a oh. half time secretary, she worked with uh, Ed Roberts and Bill Gates. Uh, which is before they were giving out shares to course, secretaries. Of course, of course. But Ed Roberts, one of the original founders of Microsoft, he bought my crib, so I'm tied in with these old school guys. I, I don't know Ed from a hole in my head right You're now, right. but you know, that, at least that's what she tells me, and oh, here she's wow. telling me the truth. So it's kind of funny. You know, they started in Albuquerque and moved to Seattle to oh, avoid no taxes. A couple of years later, they used to be called MIPs. So it's kind of funny. I have this weird, like, you know, I, I was whatever one year old or something. Yeah. Um, but this weird kind of IT, you know, Silicon Valley connection. Maybe it's genetic. Yeah. It. Yeah. Hell of a pedigree. I mean, but it's all, you know, kind of yeah. interesting, but not that particularly impactful, I don't think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I was kind of fat growing up. I, I was always overweight, and I had these these nosebleeds like 10 times a day. Just, I was just used to it. My nose would always bleed. Mm. Uh, it made dating kind of hellish. And then, yeah, <laughs> and of course amazing. I was fat, and I had just a lot of attentional issues. I, I was a, reason, a reasonably good student, but I'd fall asleep in every class all the time. I was just constantly sleeping, and the teachers would yell at me, and I'm like, I have an A in your class. What's your problem? And i go back to sleep. So you weren't sleeping to be a dick. You were sleeping... Stay awake. I never stayed awake in a class. I didn't know how to do it. Was it a response to stress? I don't. I'm sure some of it was that. Uh. And I know a lot about how my nervous system got wired the way it is now. Uh. But uh, part of it is that my eyes. I, I learned in the course of hacking my body. They don't team up as well as they should. And this may be because I learned to read at 18 months. So I spent a lot of time reading instead of a lot of time like moving around and all. was very uh, young, yeah. we don't really. You know, we don't know for sure, but. So my brain gets stressed, especially under fluorescent lights. And there's a lot of kids with ADD or even autism who have this problem. So these really cheap fluorescent lights are putting up everywhere that are bad for all humans, not just ones with ADD. But uh, these things for me, after about 15 minutes, they trigger an eyes-open, whole-brain alpha state. So using my EEG machine, you can see it coming. I'll feel it in my stomach first. I feel a blip. And as near as we can tell... It's probably what you'd call a silent migraine. There's no pain, but, like, I'll drool on myself, and I feel like I'm asleep, but I look like I'm awake half the time. And this had plagued me for years, and now I know what it is. And you'll you'll see me wearing orange glasses on a lot of my interviews. Including the one we did yesterday. Oh, that's right, in fact, come to think of it. So if I'm looking at a fluorescent light or a bright light source, particularly in one part of my visual field... After a while, it's going to turn my brain off. So I'll be dead tired and dragging by the end of the day, or I can feel completely awesome with as much focus as I want all day long. For me, the color of the lenses matters if I'm Mm. in certain lighting conditions. Did I ever know this? No. I used to think when I went to the mall that I would just, like, feel tired because the air was bad or just because I would feel guilty because, like, well, I just don't like going shopping with my wife. Sorry. Like, you know, I'm not a very good husband. No. There's, <laughs> the environment has a really specific effect on the body. Yeah. And I started becoming aware of this when I started tracking my cognitive function. Uh-huh. The reason I got worried about this… Is that I decided I was I had three knee surgeries by the time I was 22. I have no ACL because of the weight. Cause, not really because of the weight, because of inflammation and because of adrenal dysfunction. It, uh, it turns yeah, out if chronic inflammation. My surgeon had just said, "Dave, stop eating the foods that make you inflamed, <laughs> right? And you know maybe change a few lifestyle things and you'll be fine. It'll take two months. He would have saved me an awful lot of pain and suffering, and I'd still have an ACL." As it was, though, you know, I, I was wrecking my body. I didn't know what I was, you know, how to, there's no manual for, for the body. Right. And I also had these chronic sinus infections and strep throat. So I was on antibiotics every month for 15 years. And you're in a part of the country that people go to to avoid sinus infections, right? I was Dry, until I was 16. I lived out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's supposed to be good yeah, for, for that kind a, of thing. It's supposed to be. <laughs> it, it turns out, in retrospect, I know what happened. I lived in a fully finished basement in a nice house, but it had been flooded before we bought the house. There was one water damage Behind the paneling I had every symptom Of stachybotrys Including the inability To focus Including the nosebleeds Which are a dead giveaway Stachybotrys? It's one of the really Nasty toxic molds That affects your brain function It, Uh It creates poisons In the air That affect you At very very trace amounts It's also tied to Chemical sensitivity In people Right And I would get bruises Like I would just Bruise for no reason I was always bruised And I couldn't tell you why And what was going on Is my body was taking Every bit of vitamin C In my diet And using it to try And save my liver From these toxins Instead of to Build good capillaries. Oh, man. So it, it's it's pretty amazing. And now that I've done all this biohacking, I, I know a lot more about the way I'm wired than the average person. And I can tell you, I have a genetic um, expression or a, just a gene that is common in about 28% of humans. And for us, this 28%, if we breathe toxic mold, our bodies don't know how to excrete it. Like we, we're optimized to recycle our bile, which is a great adaptation for living in times of of varying dietary availability because bile is very expensive to produce. So if Uh you have periodic famines, the ability to recirculate bile may save your life. I'm also a rapid clotter, which means that in periods of warfare, I'm going to survive the arrow stick and you may not unless you have the same thing because I'll, I'll clot. Well, the combination of recirculating bile, where these poisons come in when you breathe them, recirculating those poisons so they keep poisoning you, and then having rapidly clotting blood which responds to the poison Equals bad news for your health. So I had this growing up. Uh This was a big contributor to my obesity, but so was the standard American diet and all these other things. So so not knowing any of that, I'm like, okay, I'm a reasonably smart guy. Uh, You know, I studied computer science. I studied information systems. I'm in Silicon Valley. I've got my first, quote, you know real job and i'm at a company called 3com one of the pioneers of the networking business they yeah. sold to dell a few years ago but at the time it was 3com or cisco who's gonna win well we know who won <laughs> 3com like sponsors candlestick park they
2: it were, became 3com yeah park? yeah
0: i was there uh, when was that happened uh, ed benamu the the ceo at, at 3com pioneered the whole concept of paying money to sponsor the name of a park all so uh, right you know, I, i'm still mad at him for doing that because honestly like How do you know the name of the park when it used to be Staples Park? Now it's like, you know... Whatever, Office Depot Park. You're like, yeah. who cares? Yeah, man? who cares? And anyway. Candlestick was such a nice name.
2: Yeah, you it, know? It, was a, it
0: was. Yeah, we shouldn't have desecrated Candlestick that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, back, back to yeah. your story. So you're at, you're at three. You studied information technology in college. First, I studied computer science, and after four years of that, I quit because I, I'd started a company selling T-shirts online, and uh, they couldn't even spell internet in my in my computer science program. It was all about like big scale compute stuff, uh, and I wanted to know like, what do you do with this? Like, like, what's the hands-on application? Yeah. So I went to California State University, and I studied information systems at a laboratory that Gallo had just given them a million dollars. So I set up Oracle. I did all these, like, really cool big IT things, and I started my career in IT. And soon I realized IT was a huge waste of time because we were doing the same things over and over, and I wanted to automate that because mm-hmm. I'm, at my core, I'm the laziest guy ever. Like, let's see, 15 minutes of <laughs> exercise once a week or an hour a day. I'll take the 15 minutes as long as I get the benefits or maybe most of the benefits because I want to save time. So being lazy oh, drove man. me to automate my job <laughs> so I didn't have to do my job and I still get paid for it. Like it's a very natural thing for people to do if you have the tools.
2: I'm becoming a big fan here. I mean, the more you talk, <laughs> the more of a, you're touching on all these things that I'm a huge fan of. Laziness. Right, and transforming your suffering or yeah. challenge into knowledge and there, and then taking that knowledge to help other people i mean that 's kind of my story that 's the yeah. path yeah that 's a great story. I mean, you hear that same story told by so many different people i I was just writing in um, in the introduction of this book i 'm working on about how uh, you know, I, I opened the book in the preface. I don't know if this will make it to the final version, but, but I thought I'm just going to lay all my shit on the table because Good everybody's got an agenda. Mm-hmm. So here's my agenda. Right. I'll start yeah. with that. Right. And I, in uh, in explaining it, I talked about how, you know, I used to be really disappointed when I heard that, um, you know, Hemingway was uptight about that his penis was too small and that's why. <laughs> was he? Yeah. And, and he, yeah he complained about it to F. Scott Fitzgerald who <laughs> shared it with the world um <laughs> But uh, you know, or Nietzsche was was sickly and chronically mm-hmm. ill, and so he sort of compensated and came up with the Ubermensch, you know, yeah. concept. And people accuse me of that all the time. By right. the way, right? <laughs> well, but see, the thing is, I mean, if you're if you're upfront about yeah. it, it's not hypocrisy. Not at it's all. It's like, okay, yeah, I faced these challenges. Here's how I overcame them, and that informs what I've got to offer the world. Of course, it does. So, you know, what else do I have? Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not going. You're not interested in the shit that came easy to me. That's not a value you to you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm I, I, I'm resonating with what you're saying here. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you for that little tirade.
0: Not at all. It, it, <laughs> that's, that's what I do. The, the, the idea of, you know, the Ubermensch and, and the whole Nietzsche thing, yeah. it, yeah, my motivation, and I try and say this, maybe I don't often enough, is that people hear they say, "Dave, you made six million dollars when you were 26." You know, you're you're a rich asshole. I mean, they they just hear that and, and like it, they don't necessarily say that, but they think it like it's right. one of those has you know, more than me, blah blah blah. Right. And It's like no, okay, I suffered more than the average person because when I was doing that, like I weighed 300 pounds, I I literally had a hard time focusing, and I realized that I couldn't pay attention at Three Com, I couldn't. The end of the day came. I didn't even know what I did with half the day. Mm. I was so toxic and my body just wasn't working. So I started writing down everything I ate and I would write down throughout the day, like how I felt just in the sides of my notepads that I was using while I was at, uh, like while I was in meetings. Right. So it was a pretty straightforward way of like getting an idea of like. What's causing... What could be causing something? And how, how am I doing now? How am I doing now? And asking myself that over and over. When I did that, I realized that, wow, if I eat gluten the day before today, I'm a zombie. But the day I eat the gluten, I actually feel fine. And I realized that I had all these things that were affecting my consciousness. And also, I realized that I'm not crazy. Because I used to think, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm not trying hard enough. In fact, I was very convinced... It's because I lack willpower. You fast forward you know, 15, 20 years. Now we know willpower is a finite resource. Yeah. No one lacks willpower. They just waste willpower. The, it's a huge difference. That's a huge point, man. Yeah. That and is I was wasting really big, all my, yeah. you know, thinking that it was because I wasn't wasting enough of it. And, and now, like, no, my willpower is an absolutely precious resource. And I, I just refuse to do stuff that other people can do. I, I only want to do things that are highest value that help the most people, help my family, help the world, help myself. Right. Leverage. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's leverage. So that was something that came to me relatively early. And when I realized there was a problem, I realized, okay, what have I done my entire career? And even before that, I, I come from a family of hacker thinker kinds of people. I'm like, okay, so... What are the variables? How can I tweak them? And I started playing Free Cell. Remember Free Cell? It's it's a a solitaire game that comes with Windows. And I would play this three or four times a day, and I'd get a quantitative metric for how focused my brain was. Because some days I could play.
2: Oh, I remember
0: that. Yeah. 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 I remember that. You you move little cards back and forth. It's kind of addictive. Yeah. Funny enough, I figured out if I played free cell during a lecture, I I did a double semester, like two semesters in one semester worth of classes. And I got a 3.9 GPA, the highest in my academic career, because I played free cell all class, every class. And you weren't falling asleep. I wasn't falling asleep. And because it was engaging the distracted parts of my mind, so they weren't distracted anymore, all the sounds would just come in and I knew everything. It was the most amazing semester ever. But then everyone yelled at me for playing video games in class. And I was like... If you don't like it, don't look at my screen and I would play it anyway. But what it it became for me was a signal of how well my brain was doing because some days were good, some days were bad. And I, I started saying, I can fix this. And, okay, then I made six million bucks. I said, okay, I'm going to—I fired my doctor because he couldn't seem to help, and I started studying all these various biochemistry and anti-aging and so, smart How
2: did you make the money? Was that you, oh, yeah. you sold
0: your stock or this you was, had a yeah, company? This, this is a company called Exodus Communications, and this is the one that invented modern cloud computing. We built the first data center ever uh, for—IBM built data centers in the 50s, but the first outsourced data center ever. Really? Co- what was this? Uh, we went public in 97. 96. So was it for, for data storage, or what were you... It was actually um, Hotmail's first server, Google's first servers. They didn't want to have to build a building and then bring uh, fiber optics into the building. It, was, it took too long. So what we figured out is we'd bring the fiber optics in, and we'd rent space in our building. We'd give you electricity and air-conditioned space for servers. Ah, and thus, the cloud was born. Clever, and On right. top of that, automated services. And I was a founder of the consulting group there, which wrote the first automated cloud platform of, of its day. Wow. And it was an amazing time, but the stock split three times in 1998, the only stock ever to do that. <laughs> and, and so all of a sudden, you know, I started like some low-level flunky, and I'm like, employee 300, the company grows to 5,000 people. And I became, actually ran the strategy, uh, the technology strategy for the company. And I worked for the EVP of, you know, business strategy for the whole company, sat outside the CEO's office, all this stuff. And I'm like 26, 27. So... I'm like, I, I'm on top of the world. I'm, I'm going to you know, keep all my millions. I'm going to get a degree in biopharmacology or something I don't know anything about. And it's going to be so cool. And then, of course, the company, like the stock crashes in the dot-com boom because all our customers were dot-com. And because I, I was responsible for mergers and acquisition uh, due diligence, I knew everything. I wasn't allowed to sell my stock. So I watched my fortune go away right in front of my eyes. But I didn't pull the plug and quit and sell my stock because I figured it would come back. And then the company went bankrupt. So I had the amazing stress before I was 30 of being set for life and then having to work again for a very long period of and time. And
2: watching it slip away it, and it not was, being
0: able to do anything. You couldn't cut your losses. I could. I could just quit my job and, and give up all the future value of the company, all the stock that was still coming to me. Right. If I, could, if I had a crystal ball, and honestly, where I am now, it would have been a no-brainer. But at the time, I was so driven by instinct and fear that my fear was I won't have enough. <laughs> so I'm like am I stupid? There's like a couple million dollars sitting there. If I quit right now I can hit sell and then I'm done. And then I could come back tomorrow and say guys do you still want the work I do because I know you really value it. That's why you Hi, let me a into consultant. the board. Meetings. Yeah, yeah, right. But I was you know i I wasn't ready I didn't know how to handle money like that like no one yeah. teaches you that uh, and now like like some of my coaching clients are are young and relatively wealthy and then that's a small part of what I talk to them about do you You coach that as well it, just the psychological experience uh-huh. and how to deal effectively with money like yeah. I, I blew all this money on like wealth managers and like I, I'm not going to pay any taxes on my money I don't want to pay taxes so like I, you know, like I hired some company and they made like a, a wealth or a, a trust And then the the trust was going to buy life insurance. And I spent like like almost $100,000 on this crap, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and what did it get me? Yeah. $25,000 a year in fees minimum yeah. and in inaccessibility to my money. So what I learned was like stressing about paying 2% less taxes is actually not really a good use of my time. So Isn't, isn't that weird how the yeah. more money,
2: I, I've experienced this myself, I, I'm I'm not criticizing anyone, but the more money someone has, the more sensitive they get about paying taxes, even though the more they can afford, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like it's an abstraction. When uh, it, above it a certain point, it's. I, I worked for this multimillionaire in New York one time. And he was the guy's probably worth fifty million dollars. He owns three buildings in the Diamond District. Wow! So he's doing all right. Paid off, Whoa. right? Because they've been in the family for a few generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was 70 something at the time, and he used to come into the office every day. And of course, since they owned the building, the offices that they had for the, the management of the building were the interior offices with no windows, you know, mm-hmm. because they were maximizing income right. and all that. He would sit at this windowless office behind his desk with these big um, jars of hearing aid batteries, because he had a company that, that did recycling hearing mm-hmm. aid, getting the precious metals out of some hearing aid batteries and apparently some hearing aid batteries have cadmium and platinum and expensive stuff and others don't and he would dump these things out on his desk and sit there all day and sort the expensive ones from the non-expensive ones.
0: This guy... What an awful story. Oh, my God. <laughs> this
2: guy had houses in Jamaica, in New York, and, you know, all over the world. He had a private jet. He had everything you could ever possibly... And that's how he spent his days.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah.
2: I remember saying to him one day, you know, he he had uh, Glen Fittich. always drank Glen Fittich scotch at the end of the day. he mm-hmm. pour some Glen Fittich and we talked. talk. I remember saying to him one day, like, you know you've got all the money anyone could ever want. Why do you spend your day sitting here in this windowless office? Why aren't you in Jamaica? Why aren't you? And he said, you know, money stopped being money to me a long time ago. Now it's just points in a game and I want to keep winning.
0: I I used to really believe that. In fact, you know, I I had this quote on my website back in the day uh, that was like, um, business is just a game. Money is how you keep score. And honestly, I was kind of an egotistical asshole back then. Um, because i I don't know i don't actually believe that right now like like business if you're doing it right anyway it is more of a is more of a endeavor to serve other people like what are you doing to make the world a better place what are you doing for the people who work with you and your company uh and if you're not doing all that stuff right like what the heck are you doing uh and maybe Mm -hmm. you know maybe i'm just fooling myself now who knows but i i honestly feel like if bulletproof executive wasn't if my goal wasn't to share all this knowledge and to you know, help other people in their 20s or 30s or 40s or wherever, just stop doing all the crap that I did for so long that wrecked my body, um, that's that's a pretty good goal right there. And I feel like I've achieved enormous amounts every time someone sends me an email that says, "Dave, I just lost 40 pounds and my brain turned on. I had no idea I could feel like this. Like I win. And whether you know, people decide that they're going to try my coffee, which really is different, or not, like some are going to. And they'll like it or they won't like it. Right. And it'll support my employees. But, like, my employees have, have been paid for many, many months when I haven't been paid. Hmm. Uh, because, like, well, that's what it took, right? And so it, the mission is just different when your goal is to, you know, reform an industry. Uh, in this case, I'm, I'm really out to fix coffee.
2: Is that what is it's, that your primary focus, focus at this and
0: point? Bulletproof coffee and, and the the recipe for Bulletproof coffee is to fix people's metabolisms and brains. But the... The beans that I have, there is a problem with mold toxins in coffee. It comes from the way coffee is processed. It's the number two most traded commodity on earth after oil. And because of that, people are trained to sort of just drink coffee and they think coffee is coffee. And what I discovered is that when I drink a lot of coffee, it has toxins from mold, from fermentation in it. And those toxins really affect my ability to focus my brain.
2: And those toxins survive the brewing process.
0: They survive brewing and roasting, unfortunately. It would be really easy if they didn't. It's not that the mold survives. That stuff gets burned and dead a long time ago. It's that the stuff I'm dealing with is at a parts-per-billion level. And here's a shocking thing. The Europeans have a standard of five parts-per-billion. If your coffee has more than that, you're not allowed to sell it. The Americans have no standard. So you wonder where all the crap coffee from the planet goes. Well, that's funny. Most of Asia has the same standard as Europe, but not the U.S. Really? So people drink coffee and they say coffee makes me feel jittery and angry and anxious and I get heartburn, and I don't want to drink coffee anymore. I'm like, yeah, I quit coffee for five years even though I really like the stuff until I hacked the process of making coffee. And we used the Bulletproof process to turn the coffee into green coffee. And then we do a bunch of laboratory testing on it. And what comes out, it it has a quantifiable difference in your ability to focus to the point we've done an institutional review board approved study on human cognition of my beans versus mass market beans. And on seven of nine measures of executive function, huge differences in performance. So it really is coffee that upgrades your performance. But it kind of annoys me that when I go and stay in a hotel. I have to bring my beans and brew them if I want this. Every, every coffee bean that's produced, if we cared enough about the soil and about the agricultural practices and about the stuff you don't see except at the sexy roaster, that stuff is actually more important than the roast, and the roast is important too. You get all that stuff right, the system of coffee, and you have something that is an amazing beverage that's good for people. And if you get it wrong, right. you have something that makes people basically act like jerks because they're all stressed out and they feel unwell.
2: So what what is the, the process for eliminating
0: the, the fungus? Is it one fungus or a host it, it's of them? It's a host of them, but um, uh, Fusarium is one of the major fung- uh, fungi. Uh, Aspergillus is another. And it depends on the region of, of the world. The different fungus is uh, grown okay. in different places. And one thing that matters is shade-grown coffee allows a specific fungus called uh, I'm going to call it a white halo fungus. Um, and that fungus stops toxin production in other funguses. Uh, but if you remove the trees to allow higher intensity coffee farming, then what you get is you get no more white halo fungus so then the the other stuff that grows on the coffee, or actually specifically on the cherries, gets to be much more aggressive. And then you take it out of there and you, you ferment it in various ways and they do all sorts of like, green coffee processing techniques. So what I went through I'm like, okay, what are all the things you can do at every step from you know where the coffee is grown, where it's planted, how it's harvested, how it's processed, and then even how it's roasted in order to maximize not the flavor and not the cost, which is the only two things that most people talk about, mm. but is to maximize the impact on human performance. And when you do that, you get coffee that tastes really good. But more importantly, you get coffee that doesn't have stuff in it that that's bad for you. Yeah. And I, this is angered a lot of people in the coffee business. They say, you know, I'm a coffee alarmist. Like, Okay. I guess all of the EU is a coffee alarmist, too, because they have standards and we don't in the U.S. You know, Casilda and I were talking about this yesterday when mm-hmm. we were driving back. By the way,
2: we should uh, tell people where to see uh, – I keep alluding to the fact that you and I spoke yesterday uh, for your podcast, oh, yeah. a, a video podcast. That'll be up uh, whenever it gets
0: edited. Pretty but soon, yeah.
2: where can people
0: see that? Oh, that'll be on BulletproofExec.com. Okay. On iTunes, it's Bulletproof Executive Radio. Look in the health category. where top ten ranked, I think, every week. But uh, – <laughs> sometimes number one but not always Jillian whatever not to is. brag Jillian Andrews or Michaels whatever her name is keeps beating us uh, <laughs> bitch
2: damn bitch um uh, what the hell was I saying oh Cassie and I were driving home yesterday and, and she uh, you know as most listeners know Cassie's a doctor she yeah. grew up in Africa and, and she was like well that guy's really interesting he has interesting books he really knows his stuff doesn't he is he a doctor I said I don't think he's a doctor but he, he does all this biohacking I was explaining what that was and, and we talked a little bit about the little I knew about the bulletproof coffee and the fungus and all that and she was like yeah that's he's, he's definitely right and I said but wouldn't the, the brewing process no because the fu- the spore can live through that stuff, and then there's dampness, and they recreate,
0: and Ooh, she and knows. she went
2: through this whole thing because she in Mozambique, there's a huge problem with fungus in peanuts.
0: Oh yeah, so of course in Mozambique they have major problems in corn too. Yeah, like the percentage of people in the third world who are dying years early of very painful deaths because Diverts, of toxins in corn yeah. and coffee and peanuts. Right. Oh my God, it, it's it's horrifying.
2: When apparently it's a it's an issue here too. I mean, my father eats peanuts constantly constantly Thinking it's worst. healthy, and yeah. he had liver cancer.
0: You know, there's a there's a serious connection there. Yeah, does he have Alzheimer's by any chance? No, not yet. No. So the, the other <laughs> thing about peanuts, the reason that they're not on the bulletproof diet, is that they're high in, in lectins. This kind of protein that can penetrate the gut and stick to various tissues in your body. Uh-huh. But they have a very long chain fatty acid in them that doesn't fit well in your cell membranes. People with Alzheimer's disease tend to have a much higher percentage of very long chain fatty acids in their brain. So Mm. you're like, okay, whack the brain, whack the liver, (laughs) and then cause inflammation because of lectins. Like I'm pretty sure peanuts, like they're a lot better than dying, no doubt about it. And they're actually better than canola oil. Mm. uh, But mold is a problem, and uh, man, it's it's really scary when you go to an agricultural based. Uh, environment like that, where you don't grow your own food right. because it's you know, for most people it's not an option, uh, then all of a sudden you get these big companies and they say, oh, "I'll buy a hundred thousand pounds of peanuts and they mix them all together." And it used to be either you ate from a spoiled crop or you ate from a clean crop. Right. If you ate from the spoiled one, you got sick and you recovered. But when you eat mass market stuff like that, that's industrial processed. Every day, you're getting some mold and some non-mold. So you have like a baseline chaos level of mold that never goes away. And I'm certain that some percentage of especially psychiatric problems as well as systemic inflammation that just seems intractable, it's caused by impurities in our food supply that come because we're designed for an on-off kind of toxin level, not chronic background toxin because it raises our stress levels. It's like stress.
2: Yeah. You know, we're we're evolved for acute stress episodes, not chronic stress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh great historic example of what you're talking about uh fungal contamination of the food supply leading to all sorts of cultural things medieval europe and the witch burnings oh yeah you know the the argo that was growing yeah yeah uh amazing amazing somebody i don't remember who it was but what 20 years ago or so went Mm -hmm. back and looked at the years in which lots of witch burnings took place the year before that there had been a lot of rainfall and when there's a lot of rainfall the rye supply after it's harvested is stored but it's very damp and it provides the conditions for the growth of argo which is the mm-hmm. you know lsd essentially so everyone was tripping their faces off because that stuff went into the yeah. bread supply and that's when everybody started seeing
0: witches and burning and going nuts what i want to know is how can we can't see witches all the time unless we're eating that <laughs> i i see witches i, st-
2: <laughs> I uh- yeah, yeah They must be
0: there because they're, they're there
2: Yeah, they're exposed Those invisible finally. witches We'll go <laughs> get them the worst kind <laughs> Yeah you just, uh, I'm going to get in trouble with the witches I'll get angry emails from a coven so, yeah.
0: I, I will let you know The island on which you're standing right now Has the highest concentration of Wiccans Of anywhere on the planet Really? So they're actually surrounding us right now And in they're invisible Careful cloak. what you say <laughs> They can hear us it, It's true It's, it's a, a thing I learned after I moved here It's, it's kind no, of kidding. amazing though. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, you know, you can you can see how the Pacific Northwest would be a very um, spiritual kind of area. There's yeah. a, a lot of secret, a feeling of secrets and hidden worlds and, you've got and a, a lot the, of mushrooms growing up here, oh, too. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: And, and you've got the, you know, the sort of the forest, you know, we're surrounded by old growth cedars right now, but uh, it's, it's just a little bit wet and, and sort of sheltered. And the island particularly, there's a lot of spiritual stuff here, like you wouldn't imagine, but like some of, like there's some very powerful shamans who have this as their home office Hmm. and there's i mentioned the wiccans and a bunch of other stuff like that some of the largest in fact in all of canada one of the largest um, tibetan schools of tibetan bone mysticism is here on the island and like we're kind of in the country you've been driving around so we're 45 minutes from the airport but it's pretty rural yeah. and you would expect to find mostly you know pickup trucks and, and overalls uh, to be honest but instead there's yoga studios <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's it's a very unusual place I'm grateful to be living here and having access to grass fed everything and it, it's cool yeah place.
2: hey it is a cool place it's it's a beautiful place we, we were just visiting friends in Vic- Victoria who moved from Spain and talking about how great it is here I and mean, we both we all love Spain but this is uh you know this feels uh, getting back to, to the whole biohacking and Contamination and all that this to me feels like one of the last places on earth t- that hasn 't yet been completely
0: poisoned it, I felt like that when we decided to move here, and we looked around quite a lot and even in in Canada, you look at the history of the first Nations people, and yeah the u s was was pretty much not kind to the Native Americans, and I—I I know where I grew up in New Mexico, mm. in Albuquerque. You know, we, I experienced that firsthand growing up. Uh, just the effects on on you know, that society of, of what we'd, we'd done, and Canada in much more recent times was very unkind to it, its First Nations. So just you know punishing people for speaking their own language and taking kids away and taking putting them kids, in orphanages yeah. and and stuff as late as the fifties and all. Uh, in fact, one instance that still just breaks my heart, uh, they military walks in one day and, and killed all the sled dogs, every one of them, for a tribe. And when you do that to a tribe, it, the society's done. And uh, even now, there, there's something happening on the island that I'm I'm really upset about. I'd love it if your listeners knew about it. There's a documentary called Salmon Confidential That talks about this But some Norwegian companies And I have some very good friends from Norway But for God's sake, Norwegians, like, get control of your companies like, you, should yeah. be, you should be ashamed if They're you're doing the right whale now. killing too, aren't they, Norwegians? Uh, yeah, or is that, that Iceland? And yeah, Norwegians do that yeah. uh, It's relatively limited, and I, I'm not a fan of whale killing Either, but what they're doing now is They're doing the salmon farming thing, here where I live They've killed 90% of the Local sockeye salmon, which are a foundational Species, when those salmon die in another couple years Because of 25 farms within a stone throw where we're sitting, then the eagles will die, and the bear will die, and a whole way of life that's based around a sustainable natural resource will die, and they're doing it, what? To be able to grind up fish and soy pellets and antibiotics and dump them in salmon farms that are at the mouth of a river, which is the main run for salmon. So they've been hiding behind government things, and they've been Preventing laboratory testing of fish. And the way we found out that it really was those was a bald eagle came down, picked up a fish from the farm, and then dropped it outside the farm where there were scientists waiting. And they, they filmed it. So we know it happened. They picked up the fish, they tested it, and it had all the European viruses that are killing the local fish. So instead of acknowledging the problem and cleaning it up, they're just they're letting this happen. So that's another strike against the, the First Nations there in that taking away uh, something that's at the core of the, of the culture. But here on the island there wasn't the mistreatment of the locals to the same extent that you had on the rest of of mainland canada so it feels like that may be part of why it's a little bit more uh, of a spiritual place here Uh, so i i'm i'm pretty amazed at just the wide diversity of things like that and to live two hours direct flight from silicon valley where i have a lot of my network I can go to San Francisco anytime I want. It's a relatively simple thing. And the Internet, we talked about at the beginning, cloud computing. All the people I work with on my blog, they're all over the place. Um, Mm. You know, different countries all over the U.S. Uh, You know, we're kind of ephemeral in that there is no central office. You know, it's it's a super small company. And, you know, we, we just try and make everything work as best we can. But... Uh, I think that's a great model for the future where you use the cloud to enable you to live in a place that's beautiful, a place where you can grow your own food, uh, a place where you, know, you like your neighbors, and not be packed into a giant city. And, and maybe if we're lucky, we'll see an exodus uh, from the big cities to people who want to be distributed because there's less of an impact on their own performance their own even humanity yeah Um, uh, well i don't know if if it's gonna be uh an ex a
2: happy exodus you know (laughs) because the the internet as much as it's done these positive things for you and me um it's also screwed over millions of people by um by removing that sort of locality to work, right? I was reading something just the other day, I think it was in Slate or Salon about these personal assistant mm-hmm. companies that are springing up, you know, where you don't have time to deal with all yeah. these things and so and so, you know, that's all internet enabled, but the people who are doing that work are are working for like, you know, 2 or 3 bucks per tasks that they yeah. complete which you know if they're super efficient might be 20 bucks an hour no benefits no retirement yeah. no health care you know like nothing so if you're living in the Kentucky you know mountains and you're paying uh, 200 bucks a month for rent like maybe that's sustainable but it sure as hell isn't if you're in San Francisco
0: no you're not going to live in a big city if you do that kind of work yeah. then again okay you get paid less but you live out in the country where cost of living are low and you you have ultimate flexibility for your time there are Non-financial values to that But you need to You need to have a living wage And the ability yeah. to feel safe And you know Like you have enough To uh, take a weekend off Or you know And, and Yeah to live with dignity And yeah, there's got to be uh, uh, There's got to be a, a baseline You
2: know Where we don't let people Fall below that I,
0: I could not agree more with you And uh, you look at like What Walmart did To small businesses in America right. And honestly The next one And and uh, I probably won't be popular For saying this But Amazon Yeah Like For God's sake yeah. Amazon has has destroyed at least as many small businesses as Walmart at this yeah. point. And what they do now, like let's say I, I used to sell stuff on Amazon, uh, and I don't anymore because they take the vast majority of the margin for themselves. Um, and then if you don't go there, they uh, essentially they've got this free shipping thing, which is, is makes it really hard to compete outside of Amazon. But if you're there, you have to mark your prices up so much just to pay the Amazon fees, hmm. which are way more than any other fulfillment center. And here's what they do that's just nasty. So um, let's say that I'm I'm selling a widget on Amazon and I decide to pay their incredibly high fees so that they'll ship it for me. So I I put the widget on Amazon and then... They take all of my competitors' widgets and place them on the same screen. And, of course, one competitor has a widget for $0.05 less. So then you click on that one, right? So what they're doing is they're grinding small businesses down there, right? Right. And, of course, consumers, you know, okay, I wanted to get the best value for my dollar. Okay, I respect that very much. But if you go through Amazon to do that, By the way, I have an Amazon Prime account. I order from Amazon all the time, like so. It's not like I'm boycotting Amazon, but I'm just I'm aware that like, okay, is that fulfilled by Amazon or is that from some other small company? And honestly, I'll pay an extra couple bucks to buy from a company that doesn't fulfill through Amazon because I know what damage they did to my business when I worked through them. It, It sounds. Like you would you would expect it liberated small business? No, it grinds margins down so small businesses can barely make it if they go that route.
2: Yeah, yeah. This is something that's very uh, present in my thinking these days. The the way in which uh, corporations. I, I I mean I'm sure I'm not the first to say this by a long shot, but corporations are. Are our, our Frankenstein of this era that we've created this thing that's that is now pow- more powerful than any of us, more powerful than our governments, certainly in the United States. And there's a difference. If that's the yeah. There isn't in the United <laughs> States. Um, and they. Uh, They function according to their own modalities, and what they need, and what they need is that profit margin. They need control of the market. They need a monopoly, if possible. And that... has nothing to do with our benefits as as I,
0: beings i have a theory about that it's like the, the common theory is that the the rich people are a bunch of jerks and like they planned it this way oh, no no i don't think it's so. not because like I, I i work with a lot of these people in my my bulletproof coaching practice and you know what the vast majority of them care very much about the environment their kids are going to grow up in they care about their employees and you know there's always the gordon geckos of the world out there but they're yeah. They're, they're the exception. So what happens, right? You, you become a CEO, and, and I've been through this, 300 people to 5,000 people in a couple of years worth of growth. And the CEO has the best intentions in the world, and the executive management team does. But then they hire a bunch of people. And they set some basic rules. And the rules are, at the end of the day, for businesses, make money. right? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with making money. I, I'm a fan of, of the capitalist model at a certain point. But what happens there is... All of the employees make small decisions, micro decisions, thousands of times a day each person, and those decisions are optimized that way, and most of those decisions are not something that the CEO is ever going to be aware of. Because there's only so much information you can absorb. So you try and set in place a process that's going to encourage something to happen in your company. But the people who make the decisions don't make the decisions because they thought about it. They make the decisions from the primitive brain in their body, the the midbrain, the part of the brain that I like to hack the most because you get the most benefit there. So if you have someone who thinks they're making Mm. a rational decision and they're making an emotional decision colored by whatever the heck it is they're afraid of, and you replicate that by hundreds of thousands of times of decisions made every day every day, what emerges is a system that makes micro-decisions with emergent behaviors. And those emergent behaviors generally are sociopathic or psychopathic, if they were coming from a human.
2: If they were coming from a human.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I agree with you. I think
2: you get to a a meta-level in which... The humans are just plugged into this larger being, you know, like ants in yeah. an anthill. Yeah. Like the individual ant isn't thinking, oh, let's make that tower higher, but it happens. Right. You know, it gets built because that's what happens when you mm-hmm. put a whole shitload of ants together, or termites or whatever, right. in one place. and And that's what we've done. We've created these systems that are bigger than any of us, that are out of control, and whose interests often run directly counter to mm-hmm. our interests as as biological beings. Yeah. So, you know, it's cheaper to build a house with this shitty Chinese sheetrock, even though the people who live there are going to get sick and die from it, or, you know, asbestos mm-hmm. is great, yeah. you know, whatever. It's cheaper to pay the fine than to remove the asbestos or whatever it is. We've created these monsters yeah. that are now destroying us, and and this is sort of you know gets us back to your work, right? You're you're sort of, as I understand it, you're helping people fight the monsters.
0: Well, I, I am indeed, and the monsters are internal first because you know hmm. if your ability to see the world is is filtered through this part of your brain that's way faster than your conscious brain, but it's quite afraid, just like a deer. You know, it...
2: have you read Thinking, Fast and Slow? I believe so. The, the, the Kahn- Kahneman, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nobel some,
0: Prize winner. Somewhere in my in my life, I haven't read it, area. but yeah, yeah.
2: I, I noticed you refer to the the fast thinking and the slow thinking, and I, I've been meaning to read that book for a long time.
0: It, it's uh, there's several people who write about it, and a lot of the concepts come out of interpersonal neurobiology, which is a, a fascinating field in and of itself. Hmm. But uh, it it comes down to understanding that there are parts of your brain that you think are you that aren't really you. They're right. leftover parts from. Uh, from evolution of all mammals and it's just a simple automated rules engine and because of my background as actually a hacker like i, I didn't really mention this but i still i, I hold the title of uh, vp of cloud security at, at one of the top three internet security companies on earth uh, oh so you you're, you're a hacker I, I, a hacker I, hacker really yeah i mean i'm wearing a computer hacker t-shirt and like yeah so i've worked in computer security for the last uh, so you are well, anonymous uh no, I, was wondering I, who I just hang out with was. them on weekends. It's different. <laughs> no, no I, I don't know anonymous guys. But uh, they it, all say that. It's kind of funny that I you know, I, I still have a foot in the tech world and right. all that. But that's let me look at these high scale emergent behaviors that we're talking about, and then apply that kind of emergent thinking to the human body. And and that's where the biohacking really comes from is is taking those kinds of like, you know, how do systems work and at very high levels, systems that have too many moving parts to understand stand individually and then how do you change them right and and that becomes really important when you want to understand which part of your your mind is a behavior coming from and most people feel very guilty that the automated rules the same rules that you would create to make cloud computing work Simple rules. If you're running out of resources, turn on another server. Well, okay, what, what if you think you're running out of resources and you're not? You turn on all the servers and then the lights dim and everything goes to hell. Well, you have to start. We don't have those controls. So in our body, hmm. we have simple rules like that. You'll see it in a deer. Like, oh, look. You heard a sound, freeze. You hear another sound, run. They don't think about whether they should run. They're out of there. Right. So we have all that running all day long. So when someone calls on the phone and they sound like someone who was mean to you earlier, <laughs> like some part of your brain, before you can really process that they're actually calling to give you something, it's like get ready to like you know tell the guy to screw himself. So we have all this disgruntled stuff going on in our heads. And then we feel guilty like, why was, I, why was I thinking such bad thoughts about that person or why did I want to have sex with that person for no reason I can understand? Well. Dude, it was, a, it was a feeling, not a thought. There was no reason to it. That's what feelings are. They're irrational. And if you accept that those are from a part of you that is, like, vestigial uh, and not valueless, just vestigial, then you don't have to feel guilty about those feelings. Just don't choose to act on them. And what I do for for the people I work with at my extremely small you know, coffee biohacking company, whatever you want to call it, um, is anytime someone's going to join the company... Um, I send them a device, a device I also carry in my store, um, called the inner balance sensor. And it's a $99 thing that clips to your ear, and it teaches you to know when your sympathetic nervous system gets turned on. And that's your fight or flight response. And then it teaches you how to turn it off consciously. I never knew how to do this. And suddenly, having this skill, I, I get these like amazing emails from people like I I didn't understand. I was doing this all day long, and on the flip side, one of my uh, one of my coaching clients is a hedge fund trader, like trades very heavy stuff on airplanes. You know, like kind of owner of the universe kind of guy, and he. He called me up and said, Dave, I was on an airplane, and I, I decided to try it because I, I had nothing else to do. He said, I got the light green. I was so excited. I felt so good. Like, and then I thought about work, and it turned red right away. I'm like, there uh-huh. you go. So he taught himself to stay green even when he thought about work, which was a huge achievement. And then he goes into the office, clips it to his ear, sits down at his workstation. The market bell, opening bell rings. It turns red, and it stays red the entire day. This guy is going to die yeah. until he fixes that. He didn't know what was happening. Right. So once he learned what was happening, he learned to turn it green again consciously. But the same. Have you read Sapolsky? Uh,
2: with Stanford uh, MacArthur Genius, uh, neurobiologist. It does a lot of work with baboons on no. stress and status. I have not. Robert read that. Sapolsky. He's a really funky right. dude. He's got like dreadlocks. He, he wow. looks like a. I don't know what. He looks like a sort of a Neanderthal deadhead or something, cool. but he's a super genius. <laughs> right, I've he, got to read this. Oh, part. yeah, yeah. Uh, you just reminded me, you know, talking about the... Well, he's, the, he's one of the people who really makes this point about how we're optimized for acute episodes of stress, yeah. but not chronic stress right. at all. And he's been studying uh, this one troop of baboons in Kenya for 25 summers or something. He's been going there wow. every summer. And he has a blowgun, and he'll shoot them with a the blowgun with tranquilizer darts, oh. and then he takes tests them for uh, cortisol. Yeah, cortisol, yeah. right, which which uh, indicates stress, right, your, your sort of chronic mm-hmm. stress level. And then he, you know, does all sorts of readings based on where they are in the hierarchy of the wow. baboon society and, you know, how, how much sex they're having and all this kind of stuff. Really interesting work. But he did a you know, you're talking about these transformative uh, opportunities. He he noticed this really interesting thing that happened to this troop, right? Because he'd, like, been there for four generations. Mm-hmm. He knows everybody and their great-grandfathers and all that. And so a uh, hotel got built because mm-hmm. uh, this is near the Maasai Mar. I think Masai Mar, I think that area right. is called. And uh, there's some tourists who come out there. So there's this hotel, and there's a dump behind the hotel where they would throw the kitchen scraps and stuff. Oh, wow. And uh, so the baboon troop would go Mm -hmm. to this dump. And, of course, the high-status males would get the best food, which is generally meat, right? Right. So one year, the meat was contaminated with tuberculosis. Oh, no. So all the high-status males died. And suddenly you had—it's like if a bomb went off in in D.C. and Wall Street and all those dudes are gone— What's left, right? So because uh, baboons are male exogamous, which means that when the males reach sexual maturity, they leave their natal troop and go and join Mm -hmm. another troop. He figured, you know, soon these males are going to be coming in from another troop and all hell's going to break loose. They're going to rape and pillage because now this group's sort of defenseless. There are no, no nasty dominant males there. And they're all just, in the meantime, this troop is like chilled out. They're having more sex And they're more relaxed And their stress levels are lower Because all the enforcers are gone Right But then what happened So that he left You know Go back to Stanford to teach And then he went back The next summer Expecting to find them all dead Or absorbed into other troops Or something And instead He found that As he'd expected Males had come in From neighboring troops But the males learned The new chilled out lifestyle (laughs) And they adopted The chilled out lifestyle And this was like seven years ago and i confirmed with him a couple of years ago that that wow. it was still like that he said yeah it's still this amazingly relaxed troop of baboons it's it's a really wow. interesting thing yeah so it's
0: intergenerational just handing down a set of practices that didn't it's work it's a culture
2: well. exactly wow. they they adapted to the lack of enforcers with a more cooperative culture and it's persisted
0: that is pretty amazing. Yeah. So,
2: I mean, there aren't a lot of things that I find hopeful in the world right now, yeah. but that's one. So I thought I'd share it with you. Yeah. So anyway, uh, before we, we've been, what, what time the time it? flies. We've been talking for an hour. Okay. Um, but I I told you, I, I threw out a, a Twitter thing asking for questions. And so I want to respect the people. Oh, uh, cool. Uh, okay, here's one for you. I haven't heard Dave talk about alcohol usage, its effect on diet, whether or not to use it, etc.
0: There's an infographic on Bulletproof Exec. I need to make it more easy to find. It's in the Biohacker Toolbox. It's a free part of the site that just has all the cool stuff. And, uh I rank alcohol from least toxic to most toxic. Uh So you can choose the one that's going to cause the least harm to you. And then there's a protocol in there for what to do to prevent alcohol from causing damage while still enjoying the effects of alcohol. So what you want to do is try uh, liposomal glutathione That's also something that I make I'm not here to just plug my stuff It's just that the first thing alcohol does when it goes into your liver Is it depletes glutathione Which is the primary antioxidant in the liver Uh So you can take vitamin C to help a little bit But the best of all is this kind of glutathione That goes through the gut lining and raises levels You do that, and then the first stage of breakdown of alcohol, which is when alcohol goes to aldehyde. Aldehyde causes all the havoc in terms of aging your tissues and glycosylating them, it's caused. Are you self-taught? All this stuff is self-taught? Yeah. You just figured it out? I figured it out. Enlightened self interest is a very powerful motivator when you're 300 pounds and your brain is failing. Yeah, but you kept going, obviously. I mean, that's what got you it's on this road. That's what but... I do for fun. Yeah, I, I know this stuff because it's it's like, it's how the world works. Do you right?
2: get a lot of resistance from physicians or chemists or I, people who are like, hey, I, dude, you're not one
0: of us? I have physicians who are coaching clients. Yeah. Like, they want to know about the, the biohacking angle that's different. And I, I have physicians on my advisory board. So, like, no, there are, there are doctors who print out the bulletproof diet and give it to their high risk cardio. Cardiovascular patients and say, this is the simplest way I've ever found to convey this information. This is what you should eat. And yes, there's butter and coconut oil. Right. And Bulletproof coffee is okay. In fact, I drink it myself. So, no. I, I, actually, that's not to say. Some doctors go, oh my god, you're a whack job. Like, right. you're going to kill people. I'm worried. But you know, there's there's very wide variation in what doctors believe, and I've had the great privilege of running this anti-aging research group called Silicon Valley Health Institute for, uh, like, the last 10 years I've been a board member or the chairman or president. And we've had world-class guys come through and give a lecture every month in Palo Alto. We put the videos online for free about aging, about Processes in the body and about how things work. And most of them are in alignment with most of my principles. Some of them would radically disagree. Some would say, No, salt is bad for you, or whatever else. But in general, I find that there's no more or less resistance from doctors than there are from normal people, where some go, I tried it and my life is different. Like, I can't believe in three days my brain could do this. Or other people who simply say, That cannot possibly work. What a bunch of crap. You're a charlatan huckster. And You know, I I try not to spend a lot of time dwelling on those because, you know, if someone self-identifies as a skeptic... it, it's kind of like the difference between being, you know, a, a fundamentalist or an atheist. Like they're the same thing. Like they're the opposite ends of a spectrum. But dude, the spectrum curves around. It's a wheel, right? So if you're a skeptic or a believer, I don't care. You're on one side of it. I'm, I want to walk that middle line where my yeah. mind isn't so open. My brain fell out, and I'm not such a skeptic that I'm like a robot. And I, th- and I think everything is mechanistic because so I am not you,
2: mechanistic. Do you apply the scientific method to these these insights and the the processes you identify? You have control groups. You have
0: for some some of them. I do do, but when you're doing an N equals one experiment, you cannot have a control group. <laughs> what you can do is I did it this week or this month or this year, and I did it, did do yeah. the other one, and here's the lab numbers that came out of it. Since we know these studies show that this is what I expected to happen, and it did happen, maybe the placebo is so effect that it dropped my homocysteine and my C-reactive protein levels in six weeks. Could have happened. Unlikely, but you're hearing from people who are trying these things, so you're getting feedback that way. Yeah, there's you know six hundred thousand people a month come to the website. Really, and the forum has tens of thousands of posts from people who post their lab numbers. And Ah, so you're doing some cloud computing on this stuff? It's it's where big data meets health and human performance, and we will learn more about the human condition from big data approaches and sharing these things and using sensors. In fact, I didn't even mention today I launched my iPhone app. it's called no. It's called bulletproof uh, food sense. And it uses the camera flash on the back of the iPhone to get your pulse. No big deal. That's been around for a while. But we then get it at specific times of the day, including before and after a meal. And we ask you to tell to tell the app what you ate in the meal. And then we will tell you whether or not you showed signs of a food sensitivity in that meal. So it's a detector to tell you what's making you weak. No it's, kidding. It's a I, need I need that. detector. I need that. Because I'm like
2: the opposite of you. Yeah. I, I, some days I feel great. Some days I feel shitty. So whatever. And I... You know, I know people, gluten and this and that, and maybe alcohol, and, and you've met Casilda, my wife, who's, yeah. like, hyper uh, attuned to her mm-hmm. body and all these things. I'm the opposite. I mean, I could, like, lose a limb, and I wouldn't notice yeah, for 20 like, oh, minutes. Yeah,
0: 20 pounds. Yeah, like, <laughs> how come I'm
2: leaning? It's like, oh, my foot's gone. Um, but, uh, you know, it's sometimes that's an advantage because I can just sort of, like, sit in a hammock all day, and my, you know, like, she'll be like, oh, my back hurts because I didn't move for an hour. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, my back's fine. You know, I don't even feel it. It. I'm numb. Yeah, I have a back. Or <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 I, I've never taken the time to figure out these correlations that, that you're pointing to. So if there's an app, I'll, yeah, that's all that's you, right up my alley. All you have
0: to do when you wake up, you put your thumb on the flash and just lay there for a minute. And then it gets a number. And then before you eat, you do it. And then it'll ask you a half hour, 60 minutes, and 90 minutes after you eat just to hold your thumb to the So it's blast. just the pulse. So your pulse yeah. rate, you're a little stressed, so it, it goes if up. If you're allergic or sensitive to one of the foods that you ate in that meal, within basically 90 minutes of eating, your pulse rate will go up by about 16 beats or more per minute. So, what you're going to find is that most of the time when you eat, your pulse rate maybe goes up a little bit as you're digesting or something. Right. But sometimes it spikes like crazy. And that's a good sign. You ought to look at what was just in that meal. And then if you just, I, I typed in, you know, I, when, when I use the app, I, I type in the ingredients in my meal. I'm like, oh, look, you don't want to eat spice extractives. What does that do? <laughs> like, it's probably going to do something bad. So, this isn't something that I plan to use every day, but it's really cool because a lot of people go on the Bulletproof diet. They go really strict for a week or two, and they have experienced this like magic mental clarity and energy, and food cravings are gone. And then this, I'm going to slide back a little bit more into the kind of yellow zone of foods that might be good, might be bad. Let's say they eat potatoes. 20% of people who eat potatoes get rheumatoid arthritis from potatoes and the other things in the nightshade family. they've got a lot of toxins, especially really green,
2: the, oh, right? Yeah. The
0: green is... Yeah, yeah, really bad on the green ones. So there's all kinds of, of things like that hidden in food. Or maybe you're just allergic to lemons or whatever it is. So if you have lemon juice in this meal and then your heart rate is elevated, unless you're trained to know your heart rate, you're not going to feel it being elevated right. unless it's off the charts. Right. So then you'll just go through life not knowing. Just going, God, I'm a little tired. I was I woke up the next morning. I was a little puffy, whatever. But that's just the normal state of things. It's so, not. You're, it's, it's like Superman doesn't know that, that there's kryptonite around. So you, some days I feel like crap. Some days right. I'm Superman. Well <laughs> like, dude, get a kryptonite detector and don't walk there. It's not that hard to do. <laughs> that's so, a great way yeah. to say it. Now, do
2: you think the increase in, in sensitivities and allergies and all this stuff, is this that we're more sensitive to it? Or do you think that there's a genetic change happening
0: or more contaminants? What's do, going on? There's definitely definitely more chemicals in our environment. And uh, uh, Pete Meyer is one of the guys who helped set up the environmental working group and is, has become a friend. And he's, um, he and I have had some great conversations about that. And chemicals that are untested on humans are all over the place. That's and, and combining in oh, ways yeah. that no one's even it, thought about. Yeah. We haven't even tested them individually, much right. less in combination. Right. But what I think is, is actually one of the big things is a change in the soil of the planet. So you have probiotics in your gut. Our soil on the planet also has probiotics, and these are bacteria and and yeast and fungus that lives there. 30 years ago, DuPont made a kind of chemical. It's called Benomil, and it kills 98% of fungus. It's great for spraying on your soil because then stuff stops spoiling as fast. The only downside is the 2% of fungus that lives gets the X-Men mutation turned on. So it starts mutating at a plasmid level very rapidly. For 30 years, we've been allowing mutant fungus To replicate every 20 minutes And the new strains that are out there The stuff that's killing people in Mozambique And the stuff particularly in American corn and wheat That are just really bad They're making thousands of times more toxins Than the traditional fungus that we used to do And because it's a plasmid level mutation They can trade these little toxic genes Like trading cards than they do with other types of fungus So... The industrialization of the food supply, plus a massive increase in the toxicity of the organisms that used to be harmless in our soil, amplified by Roundup, which there's a study that shows Roundup causes one type of fungus, fusarium, that grows in corn and also in coffee, actually, to to get 500 times more toxins coming out of it when it's stressed. So we're eating foods that are literally dripping in toxins that poison us at a parts-per-billion level, and... You do that, you increase stress from all sorts of things. Stress increases the leakiness of the gut. So no wonder you got leaky guts, you got more toxins, you got industrialized food, you got more chemicals coming in. Chronic inflammation. Yeah, and plus problems with the bright lights at night before sleep, which causes inflammation. Right, right. Uh, All of that. What really... about electromagnetic stuff? Do you do you subscribe I, to that? I actually carry electrical uh, filters on my site made by a friend who uh, runs a, a venture capital recruit firm in Silicon Valley, he is so sensitive, he had to rebuild his house. And he's not crazy actually. He actually figured out what it was, he hacked it, he measures it with a meter, and when he fixes everything he's fine. And when he goes into a a certain environments, he's not fine. So he knows his kryptonite. And I find that there are a class of people who wake up every night at exactly the same time. They live in cities every night predictably for 20 years and it just so happens that when they install electrical filters these are little plug-in wall wart things just stick in the wall um, that they sleep the night they sleep through the night and what's going on is there's a substation switch over at 302 a.m or you know two o'clock in the morning and when that happens there's a spike in electrical activity and it manifests itself in their house in all electrical wiring out there and they're sensitive to it and it wakes them up so yeah i turn off the wi-fi at night but i don't eliminate Wi-Fi. I don't carry my cell phone in my pocket turned on, or if I do, it's a pocket in cargo pants, not right next to my, in my groin, because I kind of like, you know, I like having balls. So... <laughs> <laughs>
2: Bulletproof executive junior.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bulletproof balls. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, uh, you can sell that for sure. Bulletproof balls. All right. Before I let you go, let me just check these. I I, I feel bad. I ask people to send in questions. I get to one. I that was from for Ruben G. Uh, who else do we have? Let me, let me find a good one. Uh, John's saying, if, he could, if I could only take two supplements, which ones? Well, that would depend on the person, yeah. right? For
0: almost everyone, it's vitamin D and magnesium
2: vitamin d and magnesium those are the top two on the bulletproof list they're a uh, top two there you got it directly from the bulletproof executive himself and
0: let me give you a bit more too a thousand IU's of vitamin d for every 25 pounds of body weight a thousand IU's of vitamin d for every three yeah d3 for, th- for every 25 pounds of body weight uh-huh well that's a lot of vitamin d it is indeed and if you're and taking it with magnesium um, it'll do good things for you and you want a level between I usually say between 70 and 90 maybe 60 and 90 on a blood test blood tests are cheap get a blood test mm-hmm. and if your skin is darker if you're brown you need more than that you need that's more. for white people those Cassie
2: goals. I, 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 I started more. reading about vitamin D deficiencies five or six years ago and and she was feeling really weak and, and tired in the, su- in the winters in Barcelona mm-hmm. now you think of Spain you think there's a lot of yeah. sunlight but not really yeah. in the winter and she She's working indoors and, you know, and uh, we went to the doctor and I I said, you know, I I really think we should check her vitamin D levels because she was having blood tests for other stuff. And the doctor scoffed at me, (laughs) scoffed at me. Oh, we live in Spain. Nobody's got vitamin D deficiency here. And I was like, she's from Africa. She's dark skinned. Check it. Yeah, then we did, and she was deficient. You, severely uh, you deficient. You did her a great
0: favor. There's a problem in uh, African American communities right now, yeah, where uh, parents, good parents, are accused of of beating their children because they bring a baby into the hospital with broken bones. It's rickets. Oh no! You know, are there's are people who've lost me? their children. Because they're accused of you know, basically oh, being man. abusive parents and they're like, But I brought the kid to the hospital because they have they're crying all the time, their arm hurts, I don't know why. And like, yeah, but there's signs of four other broken bones. Clearly you've been throwing your kid against the wall and it, so, it's it's terrifying to the oh, point that's that terrible. there are cases I, I've come across where the like the husband will say, "Oh, f- okay, fine, it was me," because at least the kids so look, look at of a mother. Oh, yeah, and then God. he goes to jail. Are you kidding me? I'm that, not kidding you. This that is, happening. is heartbreaking. This is why vitamin D is even more important if your skin is brown, like especially if you're fertile and in that, that age, you've got to have it, and you don't want cancer. Why is cancer and diabetes higher? And you get and the, the supplements
2: are absorbed enough to make a serious difference. Huge difference. Yeah. It's still better to get rid worry. The thing about supplements I worry about yeah. is often, you know, like thyroid medication or whatever, yeah. you, your natural production mm-hmm. sort of shuts down when you're feeding these uh,
0: external sources. Your natural production of vitamin D won't, won't shut down. You just you need to be in the sun to get it. You could use a tanning lamp. And there's vitamin D sulfate that forms when you're in the sun. And it doesn't form unless you're using a tanning light. So there's reasons to still get sun. But right. let's face it, like, we're not probably going to be in the sun that much. At least, you know, maybe you live in Barcelona. I live in a beautiful part of the world where there's sun four months of the year. That's really nice. The rest of the time, it's gray. Yeah. But I'm also in an office all the time, so... Mm-hmm. I think I have another guy who wants to do a 15-minute podcast recording with me. So we Today? Should, we, yeah. <laughs> My fourth one today. You're a busy man. Well, listen, thank you for doing this. This, this uh, is great. You got it, Chris. Uh, is, anytime you're on the island, come on by. All right. All right. Thank you. So
2: there you have it, uh, another episode of Tangentially Speaking. Uh, hey, send me an email at uh, tangentialpodcast at gmail.com. That's tangentialpodcast.com. At gmail.com. Comments, criticisms, suggestions, whatever. Always happy to hear from you. And uh, thanks, as always, to the great Carsey Blanton for the theme music for the podcast, Smoke Alarm. You can find it at Carcyblanton.com. She makes all her music available uh, for donation. So drop some money in the bucket and download what you like. She's great. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.
1: What's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I can kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn? Soft touch, why don't you let it out? the